Keys. Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Oh my god. This is history in the making. The car of tomorrow. Today. Whoa! And you know who's gonna build these cars? We are. It's so revolutionary. This is the way cars are gonna be made from now on. One thing we needed in 60 days. Or never. It's impossible. Detroit. They're putting the squeeze on. We can't buy steel, we can't buy anything. So, I made an appointment with Senator Ferguson. Oh, what do you think? A big smile and a pat on the back is gonna make him forget he's a senator from Detroit? It's quite an idea of yours, selling dealerships for cars that don't exist. What'd he say? He said stay out of the car business. Tucker built the damn thing. Well, not everything he advertised, not yet, but enough right now to cost billions just to keep up with him. You don't understand how powerful the forces are that are working against us here. Ever since you road tested the new car, 40 G men have been following you around the clock. What for? You made the car too good. Mr. Tucker, we're from the Securities and Exchange Commission. We shall prove the only thing Mr. Tucker designed was an elaborate scheme to defraud. Why did I... If you're not careful, you're going to spend the next 20 years of your life in prison. We are going to fill that car, the one we dreamed of, exactly the one we wanted. closes the door and the little guy with a new idea we're sabotaging everything that the country stands for here from BRE Racing and Aerovault Trailers. Listen to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the best automobile show in the Southeast. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see me, yes, 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 in the studios live here in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check 669. I know the number now. 669 shows tonight, I think. Anyway, um, you can uh, check out NostalgicRadioandCars.com. 
I have my 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 support team back here is yep. uh, is uh, Scooby Doo, Scooby-Doo. and on the other side they can't see you is my trusty uh, board engineer, production engineer Matt. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing fantastic. I missed you last week. I almost forgot I what know, you look like. I know. Hey, listen, I got uh, happy Thanksgiving, belated Thanksgiving. Well, I saw you there anyway. Or I wish yeah. you. But anyway, I had a uh, and I still have it. I have a very very. I can't explain it. Uh, but I, since we're on the subject, I'll talk about it a little bit. Okay, sure. so as a, as a child, a lot of people don't realize that um, there's some of us that grind our teeth at night, okay? That's a very, very bad thing. Now, back in my day, when I was a kid, eh, you know, they really didn't. It wasn't like a big thing. I mean, nobody really talked about it that much. They do today, okay? Well, over time, what happens is you you kind of your jaw kind of deforms a little bit, and weird things happen, and then you, you start cracking your teeth. And so I cracked a tooth. And it's Ow. been cracked for a while, but I don't really notice it so much. I have no cavities, believe it or not, because I've got really good teeth. I've always took care of my teeth. But as I got older, because of this grinding thing, I've ruined my teeth. Actually, my front teeth are chipped and, you know, a few things like that. But, hey, that's character. At any rate, so I couldn't do nothing. I mean, I barely got through the show last last Tuesday. And I just kind of, like, didn't do much on Wednesday. Didn't do anything on Thursday. And then after, you know, kind of taking, you know, little things to make me feel a little bit better, it kind of, and, and, and drinking a lot of stuff through a straw and eating mashed potatoes and soup. I was, was going to say, that kind of ruined Thanksgiving dinner for you, though, didn't it? Yeah, my wife was joking. We were saying, well, let's just put it in a blender. Yeah, that, uh, could, that works. Well, I, I was able to nibble on a little piece of turkey, and obviously the mashed potatoes were really, really good, and all the other stuff that we could mash up. At any rate, where I'm going with this is I'm scheduled to go have this tooth pulled on. Th- nobody could, get this. Nobody could. I couldn't even get an emergency visit at the dental office on Wednesday because wow. everybody closed early. So yeah. then this and this doctor says, "Well, you need to go take Tylenol. You need to take uh, uh, ibuprofen and this and that." And then, all right, well, one kills your kidneys and the other one kills your liver. So I and you know I'm kind of like a little bit on the health side. So I said, "Well, that's not good." Now I take a leave. A leave I get because I, I, I it helps me out when I get my migraines. Right, but anyway. So I did that. Uh, I, I, I gargled with peroxide. Um, I uh, took some turmeric and just anything I could, could that would kind of either deal with the pain and, and, and get rid of the inflammation. I didn't think turmeric actually worked for it. Turmeric actually worked. You'd be surprised it actually worked. But you got to take a bunch of it. But and it takes a, a little bit of time. And right. then my wife bought this gel thing you put on there to numb your tooth and your gums. And that only lasts for a few. But whatever it was, the first two nights was terrible. After I started using this, I got a system down and actually kind of worked. So nonetheless, this doctor sits there and says to me, there's a place in Lutz that's called Just Pull It. Now, we're going in this direction where just pull it. Now, I'm thinking pull it, you know, like salvage yard, you know, pick your parts, pull your parts. No, no. This is a place where you can go in there and they just rip your teeth out of your head. And then there's another place that does just braces. So if you want to be a brace face, you just go there and they do your braces. So we're getting to these these clinics, if you will, or these these stores where, you know, like there's a storefront, you just walk in there and, you know, pretty soon it's going to be just amputee, uh, just brain surgery. Uh, who knows? I don't know where we're going. But anyway, so I'm scheduled to go. So they told me to call Monday, and then uh, Monday everybody was chaos and couldn't get me in. So now I I have to suffer through this until Thursday. Thursday they're going to rip the teeth out of my head, the tooth out of my head. That's bad. And we'll see what happens. 
So, but that'll give me a few days to heal. But while we're on the subject of healing and all that stuff, let's talk about some of the up and coming car shows because you got Webster, which is a three day event this weekend, and I kind of want to go to that. And then we got the HSR event, which I said was last week, but it wasn't last week. It was the SCCA event, and it's so bringing now the HSR. I think is this week Pistons and Props. And then we've got the Windermere Concourse, which is at the Orange County National Golf Center and Lodge in Orlando, which is a big deal. It's already sold out, and this is their first year. The gentleman that puts it on is a friend of mine. His name's Arnold, and he's been doing the Windermere Concourse, or not Concourse, but Cars and Coffee, and that's been doing it for a couple of years. And you know, There's a lot of big money over there, and there's a lot of really cool cars. This time, he decided, you know what, let's do a concourse. So he, he got uh, hooked up with the guys at the Orange County National Golf Center and Lodge, which is like one of the top country clubs in the Orlando area. This is particularly Windermere, which is Windermere, which is you know on the other side of Disney World, towards Winter Garden, which is towards Okoe, which is you know if you're on the other side, it's Winter Park, which is the high rent district, and then on on uh, that would be on the east side, on the west side, it's it's kind of like the Windermere Winter Garden area. Anyway, nonetheless, so that's this weekend, and next weekend is the Palm Beach Concourse at the Trump International Golf Club. And I think there might be some other stuff going on, too. But anyway, so there's a lot of stuff going on. I cannot afford to be ill or uh, incapacitated in any way, shape, or form because there's just too much stuff going on. Of course, uh, a big shout-out to my friends. I'm, I'm, I'm holding their pen up here. Uh, at Fast Lane Travel, you know, if you want to, uh, we're putting our itineraries together for our European driving tours for next year. So if you want to go to Germany, if you want to go to Austria, if you want to go to Italy, you want to go to France, and you want to go fast, and you want to go on the Autobahn, and you want to get behind the wheel of a Porsche. Yes, all of that, yes. All of that, yes, 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 yes. Then, okay, that's the deal. Anyway, on that note, um, wow, we're at 7.15 already? Time flies when you're having fun. Exactly. Uh, what did I do this past weekend? Well, I couldn't do much of anything, and my tooth was hurting. Um so, well, we'll have to deal with that. So, uh, oh, all right. So, let's just talk about, uh, I'll, I'll digress here and get into the car business a little bit. So, I'm doing a, uh, a diminished value on a 2017 uh, Subaru, okay? And this lady bought this car pre owned uh, after her other car, her other Subaru, um, was subsequently crashed. So she wanted another all-wheel drive car. She lived up in, in the in the Pennsylvania area, and she wanted something that was kind of safe. Now, Subaru is has the mythical following, like Volvo people, okay? And not that they're bad cars, but marketing's done a pretty good job of, you know, marketing those cars. And, and I'll just say, like all cars today, they're, I will say all cars today are in the, in the mid-range and the high-end range and the low-end range, respectively, are pretty much all about the same. It's not like in the old days they actually did, I mean, you know, a Ford was a better car than a Chevrolet and in terms of quality, but they sold more of the Chevrolet, so everybody thought Chevrolet was a better car. But I come from the wrecking yard world, okay? So from the wrecking yard world, when you take these cars apart, I can tell you when you're, when you're taking a car apart and you look at the actual components, that's the guy... Not the engineer, because the engineer, his problem is, is he just designs stuff because he says we got to design it's got to fit here and go there, and he does, and he's just got to build it as uh, design it as cheap as possible. And the stylists are really cool because they want to do all kinds of really cool stuff, 
up, but then the bean counters get involved and screw everything up. Okay, and the problem is the bean counters and the engineers actually need to build these cars and work on these cars because they're the ones that don't work on the car, so they have no idea. So when it comes time to fix this crap, you can't. And uh, and today the cars are far worse than what they were. The only thing they do today is they run and plug something in there, and a little doohickey tells you what go what 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 you, what you got to fix. In the old days, you actually had to, you actually had to be a mechanic. It's kind of like a race car driver. In the old days, you had to be a race car driver. Today, you just push buttons and and you have a big pair of noogies and uh, point the car and go. And the car does everything for you. So I'm not overly impressed with them either. But nonetheless, where I'm going with this is that so Subaru is a decent car, okay? Volvo is a decent car, and the rest of the cars are all about the same, okay? Because they pretty much share all the components and wiring and this and that. And it's a myth. It's a brand. It's a it's a logo. It's a pfft badge okay so they might as well just make all the cars take all the names off all the cars and just call them one car so from now on it's one car doesn't matter where it's made but anyway where i'm going with this is that um so this car was involved in an accident okay so now i went and pulled the carfax on this car carfax okay for all you guys out there listening it's just a history and reporting agency and this is another topic for another day which we'll get into a lot of debate um carfax is always not always I'm going to say 50% of the time, probably right. 50, 60% of the time, maybe right. The other 40% of the time, it is wrong because the information that they gather, the data they gather is swiped from basically if the if a body shop writes an estimate on your car, and I talked about this once before, they use a CCC form, they just kind of like, boop, take that information and they, they whoever's entering the information, okay, we're not at AI at that stage yet, okay, where it does all this stuff for you. There's some guy that's sitting there entering this information. Well, the guy entering the information doesn't know. It's like the old saying, what was it, input in, something out, whatever, input out. Um, there's an old cliche there. But this is back in the early days of computers. But if the information isn't put in right, then entered properly, then the what comes out on the other end is also going to be wrong, okay? The data, the, the whatever the, the results are. So in this particular case, this particular car says that it had minor damage, okay? So I was talking to a dealer guy because I went to the dealership to pull the Carfax and get a copy of the Marroni sticker, which is the window sticker. And based on the information, the guy says, wow, this car was only you know decent car, decent mileage, minor accident. Eh, no big deal. We, we'd be interested in that car. And I said, really? It says minor accident? Let me see that. So I looked at the thing and it says, sure enough, it says minor accident. And I go, well, now that is absolutely wrong. You know why? Because even though the damage physically looked minimal, when they got into the repair, they literally had to take the door off and replace the door and replace the quarter panel, which means... In cutting the quarter panel off the vehicle. When you take anything off a car, even by definition, even in insurance terms, if you take the windshield out of the car, you have altered the car structurally. If you've taken the door off the hinges and put it back on the car, you altered the car from the way the vehicle left the assembly line. If you cut a quarter panel off, that is definitely, no question, structural alteration and repair of the vehicle. So, having said that, and we had to, and this is another discussion for another day. We'll get we'll get into that. Um, how car faxes and reporting history, and and how dealers look at cars on trade ins to help you, the consumers. I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do a whole show on that. I might even actually have a couple dealers that obviously they won't give their names because they're afraid that uh, we mention the dealership and you're going to go, oh my God, you know, we'll stigmatize them, but we won't. But anyway, so where I'm going with this is don't put your faith in the card facts, okay? Go look at the vehicle and then take the vehicle. If you have any doubts, then hire a professional like me to do a physical inspection on the vehicle, 
GulfstreamMotorsports.com. There's a shameless plug for myself. I can do that. It's my radio show, right, Matt? Anyway. I'm, follow, the, I'm following your lead, as always. Okay, good, 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 good. Anyway, so, uh, uh, and, and, and just, if there's any doubt, just hire a professional. Just pay the little bit, because you have a tremendous amount of peace of mind if somebody looks at it and says, preferably a professional that kind of knows the industry. And then you can have the car taken someplace, and if you have to pay a few bucks to have it uh, looked at physically on a rack or whatever, you know. That's it, because uh, the wreck cars today are not like wreck cars of old, okay? They're, these are cars today are all unibody. Back in the old days, we had actually had frames. And, uh, and so today, when the cars are racked, mm, it's a little different story. And that's not to say that it can't be fixed right. Yes, they can. Anything can be fixed pretty good, but not the way it rolled off the assembly line. So it depends on what you're buying. If you're buying a car and you know it's damaged, that's one thing. If you're buying a car and it's supposed to be perfect... That's another thing. It's supposed to be as represented. On that note, Matt is going to fire up the stereo because we're going to continue with our designer series this evening. We've got a very special guest coming on. We're going to be talking about cars and design and autonomy and things of that nature. And uh, the someone's from Michigan. And uh, so since he's from Michigan, we're going to play a Michigan band, which is MC5, which was real big back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, more Motor City ties into the song title. There's, there, right? there's actually, yeah, it's called Motor City Burning, right? If I remember correctly. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. I want to fish. Okay, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that doll. We'll be right back with our very special guest. And as usual, I blah, blah, blah too much. Okay, go ahead and fire that bad boy up. Get our guest on the phone and uh, we'll let her rip. We'll be right back with more right after this. You bet.
I'm Bob Lutz, former vice chairman of General Motors, and I like listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars and Semper Fi. Okay, we're back. Thank you, Mr. Bob Lutz. Um, Okay, now, special guest this evening is also a former GM designer. And at one point, he was a professor at the uh, College for Creative Studies, which is basically very similar to the Art Center College Design in uh, California. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, John Manugian. Did I pronounce that right, John? Yes, you did. You hit it right on the head. Yeah, all right, good. Well, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Fantastic. You know, as you were playing that music, I thought to myself, we should have led with David Bowie, Panic in Detroit. Oh, you know what? We'll we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to dig that one up. We'll do that the next time you come on the radio show. How about that? <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So, so uh, John, give us a little background on yourself a little bit. Talk a little bit how you kind of got in, because you come from a family of, uh, uh, that were uh, kind of involved in the big three, so to speak. Uh, yes, uh, I I, grew, I was born and grew up in Detroit. My dad was a uh, engineer at the Ford Motor Company for fifty years. Uh, I knew at a very very young age, around seven or eight, that I had to be a car designer. So, one thing led to another. I went to Michigan State University, got a degree in product design and couldn't land a job as a car designer, but accepted a job as a clay modeler at Ford Motor Company. And then I was there doing that for maybe a year and a half, quit, went to Art Center in Los Angeles, got a second degree in transportation design, then wound up at General Motors for 35 years or so, and I left just before they went bankrupt. And then became an uh, adjunct professor at College for Creative Studies in Detroit here for, oh, eight years. And then uh, I got involved with a startup company that was going to be autonomous, uh, delivering mail and packages to, a, uh, to the third largest city in, in China. Interesting. All right, so let's go back. Let's talk about, uh, this is an area that always kind of fascinated me, because growing up in the 60s, you would see these pictures. Now, like me, like you, like a lot of kids back in those days, we all started out building car models, because you built model kits, okay, if you were a car guy. So you actually got to build, for all practical purposes, life-size models, but out of clay. So in other words, where I might have had my little Play-Doh and Silly Putty, you were using the real stuff. So take us through the process. I mean, and, and kind of give us, uh, be descriptive so I can kind of get a visual on this. Sure. Uh, the design process starts generally with sketches that the designers do based upon a design brief that's given uh, to the design studio from engineering, product planning, uh, manufacturing, etc., and they establish the basic hard points for the vehicle that's supposed to be developed. So the designers will start out doing sketches. We'll do sometimes hundreds, uh, sometimes fewer, and from that uh, body of work, they'll choose a couple of directions. Generally, from there, you'll either go to a full-size 
uh, we used to do. This is the old process. Full size airbrush rendering. And then from there, if everyone agreed that that was a good direction, you would uh, either do a one-third scale clay model of that design, which would ultimately lead to a full-size, one-to-one clay model. And again, this is, this is the old process that was uh, 20, 30 years ago and prior to that. Now, it's, uh, it's more of a streamlined situation with computers uh, generating a lot of the ideas from the designer's heads and then sometimes going directly to clay. The full-sized airbrush renderings have kind of uh, fallen out of favor. So let me get this straight. So if you had to build a scale model version, okay, what did you use as a template? I mean, were you guys that creative that you could just basically look at this with a set of eyes and recreate a scale model to scale, and then and 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 I'm not sure if you had like a, a little wooden buck underneath there, or how, take us through the process of doing that. Sure. Um, you generally started, whether it was a one-third scale or whether it was a full-size one-to-one scale, you started with a wooden armature that had the basic uh, proportions and architecture of the vehicle that you were going to develop. And then they would put styrofoam on top of that wood and that would take up another 80% and then you'd put clay on top of the styrofoam so that you didn't have more than an inch, two inches of clay around the whole thing. Really? And here's where we need to mention the uh, skill set of those sculptors was so important. They could make or break the design. And a good sculptor if a designer had any kind of a idea sketch that even closely resembled what they were thinking, you could hand this to a skilled sculptor, and they could take that sketch and turn it into a three-dimensional model just by looking at the sketch. Generally, what we did is we had templates that you would make of the body side and of the center line and of the plan view, which is looking down on the car, so that you were developing the form in three dimensions. And then once you put the basic architecture or idea of the design in, then the sculptors would use their artistic talent, their sculpting skills, to uh, refine and hone the design to where the designer was happy with the direction. Now, with... So, okay, so you are the designer, so you came up with a set of uh, drawings, plans, and yep. then did you, and then from there, it goes to, I would imagine, another department, so that would be the person that would be basically create the buck, if you will, or the, the, the underlying body, chassis, or whatever, yeah. that, and the, then, the go ahead, the armature you called it. The, the armatures were built in our shop. And they would send the finished armatures, whether it was a one-third or a four-fifth scale or a full size, they would send that to the studio, and then that's where the studio team would do the claim model. Okay, so, all right. And now, this full-size one version, 
Was that a rolling uh, vehicle of any kind, or was that stationary? And 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 what was the process there? I mean, could it move around and? Yeah. Uh, yes, and yes, depending upon the company. Okay. Uh, at, at General Motors, the the vehicles that we had generally were on steel stanchions. And the stanchions would allow the sculpting team to raise and lower the model okay. to make it easier to work on. Uh, at Ford, they had rolling uh, models, but they always had to have wheels and tires on. That was a given. So whether whether the full size car was a was a rolling model or whether it was a, a stationary that had to be raised with jacks and moved around. Uh, depended upon which company was doing the work. So then, were you, as a designer, then are you part of the whole total crew from the start, to, from the time you you first put a, a mark on a piece of paper to the time that the clay model is finished? Are you, are, you're involved in that whole process, correct? Uh, yes, sir. That that was that was the ideal situation. Generally, uh, as a designer, you like to, to start with the sketches, develop the clay, and see the whole vehicle through the end of production so that you see a sheet metal car. Okay. That wasn't always the case, though. Sometimes uh, vehicles would be developed in the advanced studios somewhere else in the building, then get transferred to the production studios where they would uh, take that idea and alter it, change it, make it more production viable. It just depended on the luck of the draw for that particular program. And I've been involved in both where uh, you would inherit a car from the advanced studio and have to productionize it. And I've also been involved in situations where I was there from the start all the way to sheet metal production. Okay. So now the sculptures, the sculptor, so that is a special, that's a special field in itself within yes. your design yes. studio. Uh, historically, and that was an interesting difference between, let's say, uh, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. General Motors had a policy. Now, this is back uh, probably the 50s, 60s, and maybe 70s. They only wanted to hire sculptors that had... Uh, college degrees or uh, degrees in, in sculpture and fine arts. At Ford and Chrysler, they uh, hired uh, technical people, woodworkers, metal workers, uh, fabricators. It was, it was a different process of how the team worked. So at, at GM, at least, they wanted to hire true artists. And I was biased. But I, I could always tell, looking at the surfaces of the cars, you could tell someone had a sensitive touch and knew how to develop these beautifully developed surfaces. And artists do that. Now, the Ford and Chrysler people were equally talented. And they developed some very, very beautiful cars as well. It was just a different, I guess, ideology of the way design wanted to work. Now, where would you say that originated? Now, everybody knows Harley Earl, okay, yeah. and then Bill Mitchell. Harley Earl was comes out of the 30s, and he did some pretty amazing stuff back in the day. 
And so would you say that, or would it be fair to say that he was really old school, and that's probably the way they did things back in the day? Because you will have to admit, and even though I'm partial to Ford, General Motors had some amazing designs. They really did, and particularly a lot of their concept cars in the 50s. And uh, Ford had some, too, and so did Chrysler, obviously during the Virgil Exner period and, then, of course, the Bordenay period, but still nothing compared to the Harl Earl and Bill Mitchell time. I mean, that was some pretty amazing stuff. And, it, and because General Motors was so big, they got a lot of, let's just say, airplay. They got a lot of, t- they got a lot of exposure, unlike Ford and, and Chrysler. Chrysler did a little bit, a little bit more so than Ford. Ford was kind of... Little sleep at the wheel there, I guess you would say, you know. But but they had some pretty amazing cars. But nonetheless, so then Harry Harley Earl had a lot of influence, obviously, on Bill Mitchell, and then subsequently, you know, when you were on board, that 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 tradition kind of carried through. Well, and and we have to we have to go back to the very beginning of the automotive design profession. Okay, which we should probably say. Uh, officially, as a profession, probably started with Harley Earl in 1927 when he created the art and color section at GM. Okay. Now, prior to that, there were people designing cars, but it hadn't been institutionalized as a uh, profession or as a process. So Harley kind of pulled that whole idea together and, and institutionalized what became car design. And as part of that, he brought clay modeling into the uh, profession so that the design teams could develop quickly with clay and make changes with clay because the Italians were using plaster, uh, many people were using wood, and it's, as you can imagine, very difficult to make changes on that. Whereas with clay, you can make very, very rapid changes, multiple changes. Uh, within a very short period of time. So Harley institutionalized the idea of doing clay models as part of the design process. So then Bill Mitchell took over. He built upon that, and then that became the, uh, I guess, the way the industry moved. And, of course, Ford and Chrysler, and then the Europeans and the Japanese, the Koreans, now the Chinese, all followed suit in one way or another. Interesting. Um, this just popped in my head here real quick, so i got to ask you, that. does the clay get really hard and brittle, or does it stay pliable over time that you were yes using? And yes. It, uh, the clay that's developed for automotive design and industrial design is kind of a, a hybrid plasticine product. And it has to be heated up in special ovens. The heat uh, makes the clay so that it's pliable. And then as it cools down, it gets harder so that you can sculpt it with uh, tools that have been sharpened. Uh, different companies use different, I guess, formulas for their clay. Some companies had very, very soft clay. Uh, some companies had very, very hard clay. Again, it was just a, a preference of that particular design organization. But to answer your question, it's soft when it comes out of the oven, and as it cools, it gets hard. So when they actually apply it, it's 
It's it's hot. It's hot. Really? Yeah. Now, are they using hot. gloves, or are they just using their raw hands, their bare hands? It depends on how tough a sculptor you are. Really? Well, I, I mean, it, coming out of the oven, sometimes it was very, very hot. And I think most, most sculptors wanted to use gloves, and they did. But it wasn't so hot that it would, it would burn you. It was just uncomfortable, I guess. But... If you didn't let it get too hot, it was easily put on by hand uh, without any gloves or protection of your of your hands. Okay, so then, how, what, uh, do I assume that it comes in a in a tub or a vat, rolled into a room, and you just kind of reach no, in, grab no, a handful? No, no, no. no, it it comes in billets that oh, are really? round, round, probably. Uh, four inches in diameter and maybe one foot long and they would put those billets into the clay and then the clay would get soft and they would take it out and put it on the vehicle so it would soft but then what type how was it dispensed was it just on a big tray and then you just grab it and then start smearing yeah. it around yes really so yeah. how long did it take to basically build a clay model car, a full-size car now? Well, uh, again, <laughs> that, that is one of those, well, it depends. You could do a, a full-size clay model in, in several days if you had the specific design and you had a big team of sculptors. But generally, the design process was two or three years long, and it was an iterative process where you'd be making change continually uh, over that two-year period of time to make changes for production and manufacturing and engineering, et cetera. So you would be working, so you could actually have the same clay model and and it'll be sitting there in the studio and that particular one got modified four or five or six or seven an infinite amount of times until... Three it, years worth. Wow. So, yeah. d but, all right, so w wouldn't have it been more, well, I shouldn't say feasible, probably wasn't, but wouldn't they build, like, a couple different versions of that, and then... Well, and that's, that's a whole other issue, because in most design programs, there would usually have been more than one full-size clay model, and the reasons for that are varied. We would take cars out to do market research, uh, we would do cars where you might want to have two or three full-size cars to make a decision as to a final direction. Uh, we would do maybe nine scale models, narrow those down to three, then do three full-size models and narrow those down to one to be the uh, ultimate direction for the design to take. So, all right, and you, you touched on this now. So in other words, would would you actually take a finished scale, full size scale model, and let's just say, for example, in Detroit, we have Cobo Hall, and you have the big car show there, in in in, in freezing January or whenever it is, um, would you take that car out there and put that car on display back in the day, along with the other new cars that that would that the manufacturers would display and have that there just to get a feedback? From the public? You no, know, we, we would do uh, a great deal of market research, but that was done uh, 
at what we would call consumer clinics, and they were done all over the country uh, in various parts of the country, not necessarily Detroit. In fact, I, I don't recall in my 30-some years ever having done more than one or two in Detroit, but we went uh, extensively around the country uh, asking customers, potential customers, existing customers, and we would show them three or four clay models and ask them uh, their opinions, what they liked, what they didn't like. Uh, there's a huge downside to that, but nonetheless, that was the process. And so we would take those claim models out to have them reviewed by uh, the buying public. Interesting. So I'm I'm not familiar with that term, consumer clinic. That's interesting. So they don't do that today, but that's something they did back in the day. Then, uh, actually, I I believe they still do do that. Although today it's probably easier. Maybe they don't use claim models. Maybe they use the virtual and or uh, screen projected ideas, which we did back then, but uh, I, I know that they still do consumer clinics, yes. Okay, so let me ask you this. All right, so now we got this clay model, this rough car or silhouette, if you will, or um, clay model. Okay, so now you have templates that you said. Those were designed, so basically, do I assume that they basically ran those up and down the side of the car to, to, to get all the contours to line up right and the bumpers and the bumper yeah. guards and the grill and everything like yeah. that? Yes, and again, that's a process that was, boy, prior to uh, the 80s. Once the 80s came, uh, we were able to utilize milling machines that could take mathematical data and, and mill those sections in. But prior to that, when I started my career in the early 70s, it was done with wooden templates. And that was a backbreaking job. But starting in about the 80s, uh, early 80s, then milling machines became a viable tool in the studios. And today they're ubiquitous. I mean, they're in every design studio around the world. Milling machines do a lot of the backbreaking work that used to take uh, so long uh, to do that was just very, very difficult physical labor. So, okay, so now when you were there and you worked on the clay models, were you considered also kind of a sculptor in a way? Well, actually, I, I was a sculptor. I, I okay. wasn't in this at, at Ford. I, uh, I was a clay sculptor, and I didn't become a designer until I went to, uh, to General Motors. Okay, so you had a natural, let's just say, affinity to kind of see things and then uh, sculpture. Well, (laughs) yeah, I think think designers in general have a good sense, they should have a good sense, if they've been through design school, to have a a good idea for three-dimensional shapes, forms, and surfaces. And so that translated for me... uh, I mean, I was only a clay modeler for a year and a half, so I wasn't, I wasn't one of the skilled people, trust me. But I learned an awful lot about surfacing. I learned a lot about putting a clay model together. So I wasn't really trained as a modeler, but my artistic sense and my design sense really helped me uh, communicate with the designers, maybe at a different level. 
John, uh, we have 10 minutes left, and I haven't even touched the surface. Would you be willing to... No, wait a minute, wait a minute, because this fascinates me. Um, sure. I'm a model guy. But anyway, so would you be willing to come back next week and we do part two? I'm just asking you now. Uh, I believe that will work. Okay. Well, just I'm just I'm throwing it out there now because it's you know it's next Tuesday, same bad time, same bad station. But anyway, all right. So back to back to the the, the clay modeling. Okay. So now you got the car, the clay done. Now what do you do about color trim? Because it's obviously it has to be presented to the brass, so to speak, the top guys that got to make a decision. So what what's the next step? How do you make it look like a car in terms of you know? The color, the feel, the the you know the the chrome, the trim, the grill, the lights, tail lights, bumpers, all that well, stuff. Keep in, keep in mind that even from the first time that that clay model comes together as a holistic design, we would apply uh, these large sheets of color, which we call dynot, and it's like a huge decal. You would soak it in water put it on the clay, and from 10 feet away, it would look like a painted surface. So 95% of the time when we would show management our design work, and that would be sometimes on a weekly basis. When I was in the Pontiac studio, we had weekly design reviews where the Pontiac management team would come down to the design studios once a week, and we would review uh, the design at that particular point in time. So the car was always dynock for, or not usually dynock for them so that they could read the shiny surface. So whenever we would show senior GM management, we tried almost 98% of the time to have the car dynock. Now that dynock could be painted. So we could show those cars in any color that you could imagine. And the chrome trim would be, uh, depicted with uh, tin foil or foil that would be placed on the clay and, and slicked down. I mean, the car, for all intents and purposes, would look like a real car from 15 feet away. We had, I've seen executives that should have known better walk up to the clay model and try to open the door. <laughs> um, but they were that good. I mean, they were, they were that realistic. Now, granted, most of the clays that we did, you, you couldn't see through. They, it was all solid clay. So we would dynock the windows in black, uh, which would depict the windows. But it, from 20 feet away, it, it, was a, uh, it was a challenge for a lot of people to, to realize it wasn't a real car. Okay, so let's talk about like the trim, for example. How sure. much detail... Like, and I'm going to use, a, I'm going to say a Cadillac grill, for example, okay? And uh, some of those grills were pretty intricate. You know, you got door handles door with, you know, with the little buttons on the little push buttons and stuff. You got windshield wipers. I don't know. How detailed did you get, have to do those cars, those clay models? Very, very detailed, down to the uh, door cuts, hood cuts, all the chrome trim. Um, in the beginnings of the program, before you had a finalized grill, we used to use black cardboard and chrome tape. And we would produce 10, 15, 20, 30 grill proposals, particularly in Cadillacs and automobiles, uh, to get to a final design. Once you got close to that final design, 
then they would do a hard model. But again, in today's design world, all that stuff is milled in by the machines, and it's milled in literally to the millimeter to the most finite detail on the car. The grill textures are all milled in, the taillights, all the details, the wipers, everything, everything. Interesting. Uh, now, here's a question I know a lot of people are going to ask, and I'm going to ask this, is so after the clay model is built, and whether it's approved or not, what happens to the model? Does it get destroyed? After the program is over, and generally once it goes into production, they recycle the clay. Okay. So they strip the Dynock off, they take uh, these big jackhammers and bust off all the clay, try to separate it from the foam pieces, and then reheat the clay. That wasn't always successful, but nonetheless, everybody's heart was in the right place. Interesting, interesting. But they use real live tires and wheels and hubcaps. Yeah. Were the hubcaps yeah. also done in clay as well? Uh, or yes. Yeah. Although, although the clay uh, wheel covers were always done separately off the car okay. on different tires and wheels so that they wouldn't get damaged. But but the real cars had uh, real steel wheels or mag wheels on them. Yes, aftermarket wheels. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to jump over here just for a second. I'm going to ask you this. We were talking about, we touched on Harley Earl and Bill Mitchell. Now, when you, as a student going through design school, and let's say when you were even teaching at the uh, College for Creative Studies, or when you were a student at the um, uh, Art Center, were people like Harley Earl and Bill Mitchell well, Mitchell was probably a contemporary at the time, but 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 Harley Earl and let's say Tremulous and some of those other designers and Gregory, did those were they personalities that were actually talked about during class? Absolutely. They. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, Strother McMinn as one of my instructors. Oh wow! Okay. And he knew all of those people from the from the thirties, Gordon Burig. Uh, Tremulous, Harley Earl, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, we knew who those predecessors were. And when I was at Art Center, Bill Mitchell came out and visited uh, on several occasions, one of which he brought uh, Giorgetto Giugiaro, who was my idol. Oh, wow. Uh, so that was, they, they were always sort of on our radar, so to speak. Very, very interesting. This is just so far. This has been pretty good, uh, John. Definitely, we're going to have to have you back next week because we're going. I'm going to touch base on the uh, on, on your tenure at, at General Motors, and then okay. also um, uh, when you were a professor or teaching at the at the um, College for um, Creative Study. Let me ask you this real quick because we, we got a few seconds left. When you were at Pontiac or General Motors, was John DeLorean still there? Did you ever get a chance to cross paths with him? Unfortunately, no. He left before I started at General Motors. I believe he left in 71, oh, okay. 72, and I didn't start until 74. But certainly his his reputation uh, was still there when I was there, yes. Wow. One thing I have to say, and we'll get into that next week, um, is all you designers, I've even looked at some of the pictures of yourself, all you guys were just very, very stylish guys. I don't know. There's just something about the that's, car, that's car. part of the deal. Yeah, Bill, yeah. Bill Mitchell, <laughs> Bill Mitchell used to say, you can never be overdressed. 
Wow. Well, this, this, that's true. I mean, uh, anyway, all right, John, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here. I look forward to having you on the show next week. We'll pick up with part two with John okay. Manugian, uh, designer with uh, General Motors and, and, and Ford and, and, and the uh, College for Creative Studies. Super. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much, and uh, hey, enjoy the rest of your week, all right? Thanks for having me. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network. Hey, Matt, is, am I deaf or I'm not hearing any music? There we go. <laughs> anyway. no, it's, it's not just you. I'm dealing with clogged deers, too, so uh, I'm kind of deaf tonight, too. Well, don't get a cold. Take your vitamin C. But anyway, uh, don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network. Tell your friends to tune in. There's a bunch of car shows going on. Check out FLACarshows.com. And uh, don't forget to follow us on social media. And uh, let's see, where am I going to be this weekend? Okay, well, if my tooth gets taken care of, I will be at the Windermere's Concourse. But our friends at FOS are doing a big event down in uh, Naples this weekend, a big festival speed event. So in the meantime, I want everybody to stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Your arms.